Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Why this is an especially cold day, it's also an especially great day as we get to celebrate with J.D. his baptism. And his baptism just reminds us that when we pray to God, and when we worship God, and when we study God from His Word, God is not just some distant theory or, or principle, or God's actions were not always in the ancient past, but God is real, God is alive, and God is working in lives today. And just as Jesus, or just as J.D. was born again 69 days ago, today, if you repent of your sin with all of your heart and trust in Jesus Christ, asking his death on the cross to pay for your sin and to be born again, you too can be born to newness of life. Now, God's chosen method for uh, breathing spiritual life into us is his word. In fact, you saw how J.D. began his testimony by reading from Psalm chapter 1 because God's word is near and dear to him. And to that end, that's why on Sunday mornings here at Crosswinds, we always put our finger in the text and we continue to read through God's Word and study it. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but every single time it's good and it riches us and it teaches us. At Crosswinds Church, we have been working our way through the book of Genesis. And in the first 10 chapters as we studied this book, we saw God was dealing with really big picture issues like creation and fall and the initial acts of judgment and dispersion of nations, just real big, globe-altering things. But then when we got past chapter 10, we saw that the focus of the book went from macro to micro, and it focused down on one man. And from this one man, God would develop His chosen people through who eventually would come Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this man's name is Abram. Abraham was a pagan from the, the city of Ur. And God called him out of that and into the promised land, into newness of life. Now, um, as we were working our way through things, we actually have been following Abram through his story. And last week, we got up to Genesis chapter 13. We learned that there was a split between Abram and his nephew Lot because they had this problem. It's sort of like modern Americans. They had too much stuff, and they couldn't seem to make it work on the same area of land. So what happened was, even though uh, Abram gave them the opportunity to choose to go anywhere in the promised land, Lot, choose, Lot chose to leave the promised land and to go down and live by Sodom. Sodom, as we saw last week was an incredible area. It was a lush area, a green area. It was described as an Edenic-like paradise. But while it had incredibly high real estate value, it also had incredibly wicked people, people that would be judged numerous times by God and finally eventually wiped out by God. Now, if you're Lot and you're choosing to live in an area that's going to get judged by God a lot, that's just not a good thing to do. It's sort of like a child going out and playing in the street, playing in traffic. You know, you may last for a while and it may be fun for a bit, but eventually you're going to get smacked. 
and you're going to get smacked big time. And today, that's what happens. Lot gets smacked by something about the size of a Mack truck. Just totally devastates his life. Now, before we get into our study, I need to t- just tell you that um, at first, when we begin to study this text, you're going to say, this is totally boring, this is totally weird, and has absolutely nothing to do with us. Just hang with me a bit. Because what you'll find is this text is incredibly applicable and incredibly relevant. We'll just need to do a little digging and a little study for it to reveal its hidden gems. So let's dive in. If you have your outlines, go ahead and begin at the top. We're going to build our outline. It's simply a two-point outline, and we're going to build it around the idea of success. Because we're going to see that Abram has incredible amounts of success. And here's what it is. Success is a harder test than prosperity. Did you know that? Success is a harder test than prosperity. Money was last week when you got a lot of money, but now fame and success is this week. Let's begin. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Mr. C, we'll just call him Mr. C, I can't pronounce his name, king of Elam, and title king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Mr. C, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. I know this sounds weird, but let's dig into these here. What we have is a coalition of four kings is going to get them into a knock them down and drag them out with a coalition of five kings. It's like a little gang warfare here. What I did is I started to, to look through these things and put these guys on a map and do a little bit of background work, and you're going to see something. This reminds you of the news. Go ahead and put the map up. Jeremy, thanks. Um, Amraphel, king of Shiner, he comes from modern-day Iraq, literally from the area of Babylon. Now, what we have is this is the first war that's ever recorded in the Bible. And where does the first war start? Iraq. Comes from Iraq. 4,000 years later, has anything changed? (laughs) Nothing's changed. But it's not just Iraq. Look what it continues. Ariok, king of Elisar, comes from the area of Syria. So now we have a coalition of Iraq and Syria. Is things starting to sound familiar right now? Can you say ISIS? (laughs) This is ISIS, literally. Except it also involves Shedley Omer, Mr. C, uh, king of Elam, who comes from modern-day Iran. And Tidal, king of Goims, who comes from modern-day Turkey. So maybe if we were to uh, sort of modernize these guys, this is Isit instead of Isis. Because Isis is the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. They're in a coalition. Well, this is Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. ISIT, in a coalition working together. These are the bad guys turning into the super bad guys, just like we have on the news today. Now, what is going on? Apparently, these kings that are in the Jordan Valley, it's a very rich valley, it's an Edenic paradise, they are well off, they are in a position where they have to pay tribute to these northern kings. 
And what this means, it goes like this. We're going to give you a deal, tell you what we have for you. If you give us $50,000 a year, we won't kill you. That's sort of what we call extortion. That's essentially what's going on. And these guys who are in the Jordan Valley, they get tired of this after 12 years. You're like, you know what? We are just not going to pay this year. So that's just an invitation for these northern kings to say, uh, we have to like, come down and get our money and kick these guys back into line. So that's exactly what this situation is that's beginning to unfold. Now let's look at some of these other kings, these kings that are in the Jordan Valley. And I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to go through two of them. What you need to know is that in Hebrew, names typically have meaning. It's similar to what we do today. We just had another child born into the church this week on the Spencer campus, and we're thrilled with that. But parents, they typically look for names to give to their children that have some kind of meaning or, or, or significance. I looked online this week for some children's names. I learned that one of the new popular ones out there is the name Riker. Did you know that Riker means strength? So if you want to like, encourage your kid to be like that big football player, you name him Riker because his name means I'm strong. Or if you're going to name a daughter, you could name her Aziel, because Aziel is a new popular name, but it literally means God is my power. So this would be a woman who's trying to look to God for her strength. Well, the same thing, like I said, happens in the Old Testament, particularly in Hebrew, Hebrew names with significance. Let me show you the first one here. King of Sodom, his name is Bera. You know what Bera means in Hebrew? Evil. This is king of evil. Now, I told you that Sodom and Gomorrah are pretty bad places. And some people would say they were really bad. They'd say, evil's my middle name. Well, Bera goes, evil's my first name. I mean, so this is the kind of guy. Can you imagine his mother naming him that? You know, I told you these are dark places. King of Gomorrah, his name is Bersha. You know what Bersha means in Hebrew? Wicked. So what you have is in Sodom and Gomorrah, you have Mr. Evil and Mr. Wicked in charge. Now, <laughs> naming is appropriate, isn't it? When we get to Genesis chapter 19, you're going to discover that God has finally had enough of these cities of the valley, and He's going to wipe them out. And we can just get an idea of how wicked they were. Because in Genesis 19, we discover that Lot is living in the city, and he has a little ministry going. He's running a bed and breakfast. And what he does is people that are in the city square uh, that are going to, don't have a place to go, they would normally sleep there in most cities overnight. Well, he's like, no, come on, come to my house, stay at my house, have good hospitality. You do not want to stay in the city square. And they're like, Why? If you stay in the city square, it is standard practice that you will be gang homosexual raped. I told you, Sodom and Gomorrah are pretty bad places with Mr. Evil and Mr. Wicked in charge. So it just sort of makes sense. Obviously, when we see in Genesis 19 that God eventually destroys them by throwing flaming road tar all over them, the question at that point is, how could God do this but why did God wait so long and not do this earlier? <laughs> That's the honest piece. A couple things here just by way of application. 
there is nothing new under the sun. People are looking for strength in alliances rather than God. Isn't that true? These four northern nations, they're trying to form a massive alliance, so they're unbeatable. The five southern kings, they're trying to form an alliance to be unbeatable. Nothing new. We live in the United States of America. There's an alliance between our states to create a nation because that way we're bigger. NATO. What is NATO? North American Treaty Organization. Is that it? What is it? Yes, I got it right. But it's an alliance, right? If we're in an alliance, then we're going to be safe. Same thing. The other thing you need to know by way of observation is this is not going to be a fair fight. You could sort of tell on the map a little bit. Uh, these northern kings are covering much larger swaths of territory than these five southern kings in the Jordan Valley. They're like kinglets or kingettes. They're, <laughs> they're little guys. So on paper, what's going to happen is these little guys should get completely mowed down. They are no match for these northern oppressors. So here we go. We are about ready to jump into the action movie section. You guys like action movies? Yeah, I'm a total action movie junkie. I don't like these little girly flicks, you know, where, like, where everyone's crying and stuff. No, just give me, the, you know, the jumping and the... Here we go, Action Movie Central. In the 14th year, uh, Mr. C and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephim in Ashtaroth and Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim in Sheva, and the Hornites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Mr. C, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now, the Valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. Bitumen means tar, by the way. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Like you, when I read this section, these names completely blew me out of the water. It was one of those weeks where you go, oh no, you mean I have to preach on that? What am I going to do? So what I did is I looked up some of these guys in Bible dictionaries and I got a map out and tried to put them on the map and see what's happening here. And this is actually really cool. What we have taking place is some first-rate military strategy. Let me show you how this unfolds. Go ahead and put the, uh, the four-part map up. We'll start in the upper left-hand corner. These big studs from the north, they come down, and what they do is they come down, you notice, to the right, and what they are traveling is called the King's Highway. This is the major trade route that goes through the area. 
And as they go down the King's Highway, they just start mopping up and destroying all the cities and all the people on the way. There's a real good reason to this. They actually pass by the cities of the Jordan Valley. And they continue to go south for quite some distance. And it doesn't show you on this map. What they do is they make a big arc. They come back up. So they're actually going closer to the Mediterranean Sea area. And then they come back up. And now they are coming up from the south to the north towards the kings that have been in the Jordan Valley. Now, why do they do this? Good military strategy. They have created this huge buffer zone where they have destroyed all of the surrounding peoples that could possibly come to the rescue. That's what they're doing. So all they have left to do is go after the plum, right smack in the middle, those five kings in the rich Jordan Valley. Interesting how this unfolds here. When they uh, unwrap these guys up, let me give you the names of some of the people that they conquer. For instance, they conquer the Rephites. We study them, and they're similar to the Anakim, it says. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 11 tells us about these guys. The Rephites were known for their gigantic, gigantic stature. They are a people group that all look similar to Goliath, like Hulk Hogan. So if you have a four-nation confederacy, the first guys you want to wipe out are the Hulk Hogans of the land, right? Those are the guys you don't want coming up from your south side. Not only that, but then they wipe out another group of people called the Emims. Now, you look these guys up, and they also are known for their gigantic stature. In fact, their name, remember he told names in Hebrew have meaning? Their name literally means terror. And when your name is terror, you know they're big, they're bad, and they're ugly. But they're all wiped out. They've destroyed all possible resistance and help for these cities. Then they come up from the south, and they actually uh, have a battle that takes place just south of the Dead Sea. It says there are tar pits in this area. It's giving us a description of how the battle unfolds. Remember, this four-nation alliance from the north is a much bigger, stronger kingdom than these five mini-kings working together. So it's sort of like five rats trying to go after an elephant. You know, all he needs to do is step down five times and you guys are squished. And that's essentially what happens. They're getting destroyed. It says, as the kings are fleeing, and it's not talking about the kings themselves, it's talking about them and their soldiers. You have guys going into the very tar pits. I mean, they should know to stay out of the tar pits. Now, I don't know if it's because they're just grossly incompetent. I don't think so. Here's what I think is happening. There's this overwhelming force. They know they're going to either get speared and, and skewered to death, or they're going to be captured and they're going to be tortured. And they say, I would rather risk my life and kill myself by diving into the tar pit than falling into their hands. Diving in a tar pit from which you will never escape and in which you will drown and die a bitter death is a really bad way to go. But it's a preferable death to falling into the hands of their enemies. This, my friends, is a bad day. It is a really bad day. 
some of the soldiers, it says, and escape, and they escape to the mountains on the side. And from there, they're, they're helpless. They watch their cities. Their, their cities are raided. Their women are taken out. They're raped. Their daughters are taken as prostitutes. Their families and their children are taken as slaves. And there's absolutely nothing they can do. It's helpless. It's hopeless when ISIS rolls into town. Now, this is a bad day, but here's where it intersects our story. In verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. They took his possessions and they went their way. You see, knucklehead Lot, you know, the guy who decided, I'm going to go live by Sodom where it's all wonderful and great, he's now caught in the crossfire. He's now getting drug off as a captive with these four kings. And here's where it gets exciting, because in every action movie, you have a huge crisis, right? But you also need a huge hero. Here comes the hero. And then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre with Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abraham. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsmen, Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. So Abram's minding his own business. He's doing what most shepherds do. You know, you, you watch how to watch grass grow, and you shear sheep. Meantime, while he's minding his own business, this alliance of these four super kingdoms are just ripping shreds to everybody around the corner, just destroying the entire king's highway. And they've destroyed the, the kings and the cities of the valley, but there's a POW, a POW who was able to escape. He escaped and he ran and he ran. He eventually runs and he gets to Abram. He's exhausted. He's been running the whole way. He's been running for his life. Abram, he came. He destroyed us. And they got, they got Lot. They've got his knucklehead nephew. And what would most of us do in that moment? Serves him right. <laughs> Told him it was a bad choice to go live down there. You know, you make your choices, you have to live with the consequences. That's just the way it goes. I mean, I'm thankful they didn't come my direction. Could have wiped me out too. <coughs> you notice that's not what Abram says. It's a whole different response. Essentially, he takes off his baseball cap. His bill had been facing front, reverses it, and puts it on backwards. Bill's in the back now. Looks over his shoulder, and he says to his men, Men, time to saddle up. It's time to roll. Now, what happens is uh, 
Abram essentially goes Braveheart on us. <laughs> he goes William Wallace on us. Now, maybe he paints his face blue like they did in Braveheart. Maybe not. I don't know. But that's essentially what happens here. He's NZ. You know what? We're going to go after these guys. I'm going to rescue my nephew. And he grabs, it says, his 318 trained men in his household. Very interesting. Think about this. These guys are not mall rent-a-cops. They are not night security guys who only have a flashlight. Later, the Hebrew says that these guys are trained warriors. These are the guys who all look like they came out of a muscle magazine. They're dressed in black. They have body armor, and they carry automatic weapons. And I'm thinking to myself, we know Abram's been prosperous, but you realize that he has his own personal army of 318 commandos? Dude, this guy is incredibly prosperous. If that is what his home security system looks like, what kind of spread does he own? He's been prosperous. This is what we have. Now, not only does he uh, get his own, like, personal army to go in pursuit of them, he grabs his neighbors. His neighbors are, um, is it Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner. Now, I just have some interesting thoughts on this. What we're about ready to have happen is Abram, the 75-plus-year-old guy, plus his personal army of commandos, and his Yahoo neighbors are about ready to go against ISIS, or ICE-IT, to be technically correct in this case. This is not looking like it's going to be a fair fight. You would think they would be massively outnumbered. But as we've learned, when God is behind something, and when God is large and in charge, it doesn't necessarily matter what the odds are, because God will see it through to success at the end. A couple of little observations, just for practical things I'd love to give to you guys. Did you notice here that Abram worked with people that didn't know God? Like, so can I. Abram, he had this relationship. It says he was in alliance with his neighbors, Mamre, Eshkel, and Aner. These guys don't know God. They don't love God. They don't follow God. But here's what I think is going on. I'm reading between the lines. I think Abram loves them, even though they don't love God. But they love Abram because Abram loves him. You see what I'm saying? Like, he loves his neighbors. So when it comes to a life-threatening situation, when it's time to mount up and ride and go and rescue Lot, they're like, count me in. If you're going, Abram, I'm with you. You love me, I love you. We are all the way with you, brother. And I thought, just for practical advice, Sometimes what happens to us as Christians is all we do is spend time with our Christian friends. And we sort of like eschew our neighbors, and we don't spend time loving our neighbors and building our relationship with our neighbors. But God wants us to do that because these guys were getting introduced to God through Abram. They were learning about what it's like to um, experience God's power and sovereignty over your life through Abram, and they're about ready to experience this in the battle that is about to unfold. Isn't this good? You know, I picture this sort of interestingly. I, I picture these guys sort of like your typical non-Christian fella. Maybe he looks a little bit like Willie, they look like Willie Roberts. You know, they have long beards, big bellies. So these guys probably have their latest hard rock t-shirt on. 
they drive pickup trucks that have lift kits and big mutters on the side, and they have a gun rack in the back, you know. And these are the guys that, like, every weekend they would never be caught dead in church because they're out in the woods killing an animal. These are obviously the guys you want to take with you when you have to go to war. But Abram's in a good relationship with them. What happens? Abram and his Yahoo neighbors and his personal army take a 120-mile trek north when they finally catch up to this massive confederation. They catch up there and they're like, ooh, we are like seriously outnumbered. What should we do? Abram comes up with a plan. Here's what his plan is. Don't let them see us. Wait till nightfall. We'll attack from multiple directions. They won't know how big we are, how many we are. They'll freak out and we'll win. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, what we find is that Abram, his little army, and his Yahoo neighbors and pickup trucks trace these guys for another 60 miles north outside of town, and they win. There's this is an incredible victory that could only be given by the very hands of God Himself. Remember, this confederation has already wiped out the entire Transjordan Valley and the, the uh, valley, the, the kings that are in the Jordan Valley. They've wiped everything out. Yet Abram and his group can take them out, which is amazing to me. Little uh, point of application to give you guys as we go through this. I want you to notice when Abram took him on, he had a plan. Notice that? He didn't like, get there and like do some kind of Moses thing where he just went like this and expected them to divide like the Red Sea. <laughs> no, he, he had a, an alliance with his neighbors. He had trained military. He had strategy. He had a plan. But if it was ever going to work, God had to be behind that plan. And he had to show up in that plan. But yet he still had to do the hard work of planning, of training, and thinking to have it go. Folks, many of us think that living by faith means we just pray about things and hope they happen. That's called passive faith. And there are times when that is appropriate. But most of the time, what's appropriate is something called active faith. Active faith is we trust God, but yet we plan, we work, we strategize, and we move forward in faith that God will carry it through, especially when the outcome or the especially when the odds are far beyond our ability. That's what Abram has here. Think of it this way. Maybe you would like someday to be a state champion um, in basketball or wrestling or in football. So you go home and you, you pray about it. Lord, I'd like to be a state champion on, uh, on the state championship team in basketball. Okay, good. But now go to practice. Now work on your shots. Now go to summer camp. Now work hard and create a plan. And you know what? If you end up being on a state championship basketball team, it was because of God's gracious hand was behind the whole thing. But did you work? Did you plan? Did you have to use your head? Yes. You see how this works for Abraham? The other thing I'd like to tell you is, by the way, do you realize that it's appropriate for Christians to go to war? Sometimes Christians have a hard time with that, that war is sometimes an appropriate and just response. Um, in fact, there are times when war isn't just allowed. War is required. 
Think about this situation. You have ISIS-like people mowing into town who are stealing the women, who are stealing the children, who are raping them, who are doing all kinds of inappropriate things. And what should you do? Okay, let's just pray and hope they go away. Or should you actually do something about it? Abram says, you know, I need to get involved. I need to do something. I like to think of it this way. It's a little bit like having a cavity in your teeth. Have you guys ever had one of those? You know how it starts to get at you? You feel it and as you start to eat. And first, what do you do? You start to pray. Oh, Lord, take the cavity away. And then you start to just choose to ignore it. Well, I'll just ignore it. But does it ever go away? Uh, does it ever get better? You're exercising passive faith, which in some circumstances is appropriate. But eventually, you're going to have to do active faith. You go to the dentist, you give him a pair of pliers, and you say, please pull. And it hurts like the dickens for a little while. But afterwards, and that bad tooth is gone, you are very happy that it was extracted. And in some ways, that's similar. You have some really bad people groups who are doing some really bad things. They're evil that is just destroying the world. You can pray they go away. You can ignore them for a period of time. But eventually, you need a pair of pliers. And it's going to be painful, and you have to extract them to stop the spread of evil. Did you realize that the Bible itself says government is given to us for our blessing, and part of the roles of government is to keep sin in check? God-given role of government. That's why we have police, so you don't have a bunch of ISIS weirdos running around you know, raping our wives and stealing our stuff. That's why we have the National Guard. That's why we have the military. It's to keep evil in check. Look what the Scriptures say. Romans 13, 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So that like Muslim weirdo guy who's just gunning down a cop in, a, I think it was in New York or Philadelphia, was it? Just gunning down a cop, shooting him 13 times. Sorry, I saw it on Facebook. Um, just because he's a cop, I'm like, dude, you are going to incur wrath. You're not respecting the God-given authority. It continues in verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good, speaking about government and military. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the, the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. The military, it's a God-given gift to keep evil in check. Some of you will sit there and say, well, I've read the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, uh, well, we should turn the other cheek, and we shouldn't take revenge. So, we're supposed to do that, not to send the military after people. The Sermon on the Mount is talking about personal ethics. It is not negating the role of police and the military to protect society from the spread of evil. Put yourself in Abram's situation. Abram and his small posse, his special ops group and his Yahoo neighbors have just officially defeated the undefeatable mega-four-nation coalition. 
that has wiped out the Transjordan Valley. Can you see the success he has just incurred? Are you beginning to sense how quickly that could go to anyone's head? As he's riding south with just gobs and truckloads of stuff for all these cities in tow, the women, the children have been liberated and rescued. And Abram and his military, his little military, and his neighbors are all in the front bringing him home. And everybody is cheering for him. Everybody is just loving him. He's in the front of every magazine, the front of every newspaper. They're tweeting his name, Facebooking his name. He's being Instagrammed and Snapchatted all over the internet. Abraham, the hero. I mean, he's really grown. He went from sort of a little migrant guy to having grown to the point of having his own security system of 318 people. Now he is the savior of the entire Transjordan Valley. Now, here's where the question comes. How do we handle success without letting it ruin us? That's the situation that he's facing. Number two, how, do I, how can I handle success without it destroying me? After his return from the defeat of Mr. C and the kings who were with him, uh, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Oh, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest, next page, you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Well, let Aner and Eshkel and Mamre take their share. What we find is that Abraham is greeted by two kings, one very righteous and one very evil. Let's look at the good guy first. And we're just going to look at him on a very high level because we could spend a lot of time here if we wanted to. Melchizedek. And it says, this is what we want to learn. Let success make God bigger, not me bigger. Let success make God bigger. Melchizedek is a very interesting character. Tonight in your life group worksheet, I'm going to let you, I have details in there so you can go much deeper into Melchizedek and who he is. You know, we could spend a lot of time, but I, I'm not going to. What you need to know is he is, number one, a king. He is king of Salem, which if you go to Psalm 76, verse 2, you find that Salem is an ancient name for Jerusalem. He is king of Jerusalem, plus he is a, a priest, a priest of not anybody, but a priest of God Most High. Here, for the first time, Abram is meeting somebody who is also worshiping the true God of the universe. Now, where does Melchizedek come from? How does he get on the scene? And he just disappears off the scene. And who told him about God Most High? And how did he become a priest? The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know this, 
when Melchizedek and Abram meet, the first thing we see in Melchizedek is an incredibly thankful heart. He throws out wine and bread. And by the way, that is a Hebrew merism. It simply means he throws an incredible welcome home banquet for Abram and his soldiers and his neighbors. Thankful heart. The next thing he does is he gives credit where credit is due. He doesn't say, Abram, the reason you won is because your soldiers are such studs. The reason you won, he doesn't say, is because your plan is so slick. He says, the reason you won is because of the gracious hand of God Almighty. He gives credit to God. And Abram joins him like, yep, God is the one who has brought about this great victory. And then the next thing he does is Abram is for the first time has met somebody who is worshiping God, and Abram expresses a gift to him. He gives him a tithe of everything that he's taken in the way of booty, 10%. Now, why does he give this to Melchizedek? Because, you see, when God has worked in your life and he's given you incredible success, not only do you respond to him by worship and giving him credit and glory, but you respond by giving back some of the blessing that he has given you right back to him. He gave him 10% of everything. Now, I'm not going to get into a section here I was going to talk about tithing. I'm going to cut that a little bit short. But I do want to um, look on to the next point, the next guy who greets him. It's Bera, king of Sodom. Remember, his real name is Mr. Evil. Here's what we learn. Be careful of success making me bigger. Mr. Evil comes up, and Mr. Evil's like, okay, I just want you to know, just so it's clear, all the stuff, I think most of the stuff you have in tow, it's actually my old stuff. You can keep the stuff, but I want all the people back. And I'm reading that going, dude, you just got kicked. Like your whole army is drowning in the tar pits. You were getting taken off as a prisoner of war, and you were drugged behind the southern section of a horse, which is not a very pleasant place to be. You are not in a position to play, let's make a deal with Abram. But he's Mr. Greedy, he's Mr. Evil, so he tries this thing. And I love the way Abram responds. You know what? You can only, I'm not going to just give you the people, but I'm going to give to you all of the stuff back. You see, I was only on a rescue mission for Lot. That's all I was doing. And I never want you to be able to say to your friends that the reason that I am rich is because he has all my stuff. I always want it to be able to be said that the reason why Abram is rich is because he has God's blessing, not Bera's stuff. I think is incredibly important. And you know why Abram said this? He said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. In other words, here is what happened. Before he went into battle and saw all this incredible stuff, Abram took an oath to God. God, I promise you, before I get any of these luxurious possessions that I could so easily lust over, I am making a promise to you to give it all back to where it came from. Isn't that the way to handle temptation? I'm just giving you a little practical insight. You make the decision about how to handle temptation before you ever face the temptation. Now, if you're young and you're single, let me tell you, you make a decision about what you will not do in your dating relationships before you meet a girlfriend. 
Not after you meet a girlfriend. Because after you meet a girlfriend, you talk yourself into sin. Make the decision beforehand. You're young. You're married. And you're working in the office. You make a decision about what you will not do with other people in that office, about time you will not spend before you meet somebody who is attractive of the opposite sex, not after you meet somebody who is attractive of the opposite sex. You see? You're in business, and your business is small, and it's just growing, and you make a decision that your business is going to be run by character, integrity, and honesty, even if it hurts you financially, before you're successful, not after you're successful. Because when you're successful and you may lose a lot of money, it's so easy to talk yourself out of it. Abram made his decision about what was the way he was going to respond to this temptation before he faced it. Now, this morning as I told you this story, I know that most of you probably found yourself identifying with somebody. Most of us found ourselves identifying with Abram. We'd like to be the hero. We'd like to be the guy who rides to the rescue. But the truth is that there is somebody that we identify with in the story. But it's not Abram. The truth is that every morning when we look in the mirror, we identify with Lot. We talk ourselves into sin. We talk ourselves into living in sin. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves captive by sin. We find ourselves held fast by the bonds of sin and destruction and death. And we need somebody, somebody to come and ride to the rescue. We need an Abram in our life. And I've got good news for you. There is an Abraham who came and rode to the rescue. It's the greater descendant of Abraham, and his name is Jesus. He came to our rescue. He died in our place for our sin on the cross to set us free. This morning, we began by seeing J.D. and his testimony. We saw how Jesus rode to his rescue. Jesus set him free 69 days ago and created him into a completely new man. My friends, today, if you repent of your sin, you trust in Jesus Christ with all of your heart, you too can be set free and become a completely new man or a completely new woman. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Abram's story. Thank you for uh, this incredible rescue. But Lord, we thank you especially for a much greater rescue that was effected against much more staggering odds, which was Jesus Christ, who rescued us from our sickness, our sin, and our shame. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.